welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, Afrofuturism and the role of Uhura, played by the now late Nichelle Nichols. Nichelle Nichols first appeared on Star Trek on September in 1966 as Lieutenant Uhura. She was one of the first black women to have a leading role on television, according to the New York Times. Star Trek was on television from 1966 to 1989, but the show remains popular today and iconic. And Michelle's Uhura remains beloved by fans all over the world. She appeared in 66 episodes of Star Trek. The world lost Michelle Nichols. She died of heart failure on Saturday, July 30th in Silver City, New Mexico. She was 89 years old. According to the New York Times, in 1977, she became an ambassador of sorts for NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. She later spoke of her pride in recruiting the first black and woman astronaut hopefuls. Her efforts resulted in over 2,600 women and people of color applicants to NASA. In 2012, she was a keynote speaker at the Goddard Space Center. Let's go to a clip now from CNN about Nichelle Nichols, her recruiting for NASA. Strong interference on subspace, Captain. The planet must be a natural radio source. Hi, I'm Nichelle Nichols, but I still feel a little bit like Lieutenant Uhura on the Starship Enterprise. You know, now there's a 20th century Enterprise, an actual space vehicle built by NASA and designed to put us in the business of space, not merely ex space exploration. The shuttle will be taking scientists and engineers, men and women of all races, into space just like the astronaut crew on the Starship Enterprise. So that is why I'm speaking to the whole family of humankind, minorities and women alike. If you qualify and would like to be an astronaut, now is the time. Now is the time. And that was the voice of the late Nichelle Nichols, who played Lieutenant Uhura on the iconic Star Trek. Also today, an update on the struggle of farm workers for their rights. Farm labor, absolutely essential work that puts food on our tables across the country and powers the economy and supports uh, communities. Now, begun in 1962 by Cesar Chavez, Dolores Huerta, Gilbert Padilla, and other early organizers, the United Farm Workers of America is the nation's first enduring and largest farm workers union. The UFW continues organizing in major agricultural sectors, chiefly 
in the United in California through a series of marches, national and consumer boycotts and fasts. The United Farm Workers Union attracted national headlines, gained labor contracts with higher wages and improved working conditions, galvanizing the Chicano movement. Let us go now to um, a clip. Okay, we're not going to have the clip of, of Dolores Huerta. Uh, the struggle of farm workers for their rights and better wages and living conditions continues today. And now the United Farm Workers Union is set to embark on a 24-day, 335-mile march from Delano, California to the state's capital in Sacramento to urge Governor Gavin Newsom to sign a bill and who um, that would permit farm workers to vote from home, giving farm workers protection from intimidation in elections to choose a union. And our guest today will be Elizabeth Strader, who has spent her career organizing labor and progressive policy campaigns. She's currently the director of strategic campaigns for the United Farm Workers. And our guest on the Nichelle Nichols segment is Lawrence Ware, co-director of Oklahoma State University African Studies Program and a contributing writer to Slate, The New York Times, The Root. He also does commentary on race and politics that have appeared in the Huffington Post live on NPR and TV One. This is a horse of Margaret Prescott here. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. I'm Max Pringle with these headlines. China continued live-fire military maneuvers in the waters off Taiwan today, one day after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi left the self-governing island, a visit that angered Beijing. Feature Story News' Giles Gibson reports on tensions in the region as Asian diplomats meet at a summit. China's foreign minister has described U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan this week as manic, irresponsible and irrational. Wang Yi made the comments at a meeting of ASEAN foreign ministers in Cambodia. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is also attending amid rising tensions between Washington and Beijing. Pelosi has said her visit was about paying respect to flourishing democracy on the island, which Beijing views as a breakaway province. From Feature Story News in London, I'm Giles Gibson. American basketball star Brittany Griner apologized to her family and teams as a Russian court heard closing arguments on her drug possession trial. The jury said it expected to, to deliver a verdict today. In her final remarks, Griner said she did not intend to break Russian law by bringing vape cartridges containing cannabis oil with her when she flew to Moscow in February. Griner has said the oil was for pain relief and that she made an honest mistake. The prosecution is seeking nine and a half years for Griner. The U.S. Senate voted overwhelmingly Wednesday to ratify NATO membership for Sweden and Finland. President Biden and leaders of both parties worked together to ensure the 95-to-1 vote. 
the move is a departure from the Trump-era America-first foreign policy, as President Trump railed against NATO and threatened at times to upend the decades-old alliance. He'd accused longtime allies of not contributing enough to the alliance. Finland and Sweden switched from their long-term neutral position following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The Bank of England has projected that the United Kingdom's economy will enter a recession at the end of the year. The Bank of England hiked interest rates today by the largest amount in more than 27 years to try and head off inflation. Feature Story News' Julia Chapman reports from London. The rate rise of half a percent is the largest increase since 1995, bringing rates to their highest level since 2008. The decision by the Monetary Policy Committee comes with a stark economic warning. It forecasts that global energy prices will push the UK economy into recession this year. If energy costs stay high, that recession could last for all of next year. Governor Andrew Bailey warned that it's difficult to make predictions right now, given the uncertainties around the war in Ukraine. That's Julia Chapman in London. The McKinney Fire continues to burn large swaths of Northern California's Klamath National Forest near the Oregon border. The fire has scorched 90 square miles and killed at least four people. Firefighters have gotten their first hold on the state's deadliest and most destructive fire of the year. The southeastern corner of the blaze, above the Siskiyou County seat of Wairika, which has about 7,800 residents, was contained. Evacuation orders for sections of the town and Hawkinsville were downgraded to warnings, allowing people to return home, but with a warning that the situation remained dangerous. About 1,300 residents remained under evacuation orders. Some 60 wildfires are burning in the U.S., mostly in the West. Police in Berkeley cleared out People's Park early Wednesday morning. It was the culmination of a long dispute over the historic open space near the UC Berkeley campus. Multiple arrests were made as demonstrators clashed with police in riot gear. Lulu Ralda reports. A group of People's Park supporters were there throughout the night to prevent full destruction. Five of them were arrested. Crews cut down most of the trees in the park. Elisa Smith, a longtime Berkeley resident and activist, talked about her experience of seeing the trees she planted with her family two decades ago. As soon as they got us out of the fence, they immediately started the chainsaws, immediately. UC Berkeley says it wants to build student housing on the park for about 1,100 students and 125 homeless people. An Alameda County judge gave the university the green light to begin construction last week. I'm Ana Lucia Ralda for KPFA. And I'm Max Pringle. You're listening to Sojourner Truth on Pacifica Radio. <laughs> And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, the struggle of farm workers for their rights and better wages and living conditions continues uh, today. Let us go to a clip uh, that was actually from the birthday of Cesar Chavez from March 31st of this year, where an announcement was made about the 24-day, 335-mile march from Delaware. California to Sacramento. Let us go to that clip now. 
Well, today is Cesar Chavez Day here in California. The state holiday honors the life of the farm worker and labor civil rights leader. Chavez is best known for leading a strike against grape growers in Kern County. He marched with workers from the Central Valley all the way to the state capitol in downtown Sacramento. He then created the National Farm Workers Association. Chavez was born on this day in 1927. He died in April of 1993 at the age of 66. But farm workers gathered at the Capitol today, remembering him and demanding more, more rights for these essential workers. KCRA 3's Maricela de la Cruz joins us live with more. Yeah, well, today was a day to remember Cesar Chavez and his legacy. And as you all mentioned, farm workers gathered throughout the state, 13 locations, one of those here, the state capitol, where farm workers were hoping to meet with Governor Gavin Newsom to discuss an agricultural labor bill. Nearly six decades after a historic farm worker march from Delano to Sacramento, today, March 31st, 2022, has been proclaimed Cesar Chavez Day by Governor Gavin Newsom. Many are remembering the work that Chavez started. The importance of Cesar Chavez Day as a state holiday is to make sure that people are engaged and in public speaking about issues of today, including the issues affecting farm workers. Mark Grossman, who worked with Chavez, says that the decades-long view and advocacy that he believed in is now a reality. He foresaw back in the 1980s that Latinos, uh, not just farm workers, but in every part of America, were going to be asserting their uh, economic, social, political influence. But as Chavez's work is celebrated, advocates are still pushing for farm worker rights. I don't want to continue seeing people to see farm workers as if they were inferior. If other workers have those rights, farm workers deserve those rights too. And today, farm workers announced that they will be retracing the march from Delano to Sacramento, previously done by Cesar Chavez himself in 1966. This is all in hope of getting hopes of getting Gavin Newsom's attention and support for the bill. Live at the Capitol, Maricela de la Cruz, KCRA 3 News. And there you go. The United Farm Workers UFW Union began a 24-day, 335-mile march to Sacramento from Delano, California. And the trek kicked off on Wednesday, August 3rd at the Farm Workers Historic 40 Acres Complex in Delano, California, where the union began 60 years ago in September of 1962. It ends at the state capitol on August 26th. The march route traces the path of the historic Cesar Chavez-led 1963 march, procession style that first brought the farm workers' grievances, which included exposure to deadly chemicals, inadequate food and shelter, and sexual harassment while receiving meager wages before the nation. I would now like to welcome our guest, Elizabeth Strader, who has spent her career organizing labor and progressive policy campaigns. She is currently the Director of Strategic Campaigns for the United Farm Workers Union. Elizabeth, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Right. Well, thank you for joining us. First, tell us about this bill. Tell our listeners what this bill is, the bill number, and what it fundamentally would do. 
Sure. So our march is in support of AB 2183, AB 2183, which is the um, Agricultural Labor Relations Voting Choice Act, quite a mouthful. The intention of the bill is to modernize and and offer more choices to the ways that farm workers are able to to vote in their union elections, which sounds like kind of a, you know, for anyone who spends a lot of time sort of thinking about even folks that are real familiar with labor organizing, um, we have to remember that farm workers and domestic workers are excluded from most of the basic labor laws around unionizing in the United States, the federal right to collectively bargain to, to join together to form a union. Those protected rights, farm workers are excluded from those. So it's a unique to California, the Agricultural Labor Relations Board, which is a structure that is just for agricultural workers. And as things are right now, the really the only choice for farm workers, if they want to vote in a union election, is to have that election on the grower's private property under the watchful eye of their supervisor, of their boss, which obviously has a really intimidating, chilling effect on farm workers' ability to participate in the democratic process of a union election. So this bill, fairly simply, just offers more choices for farm workers to have a transparent and yet maintain that private ballot function so that they'd have different choices in the way that they vote to form together into a union. Right. And who introduced the bill and who is opposing this? Because this seems pretty straightforward and reasonable. Right. Well, we think it's pretty reasonable too, but the bill was introduced and it has been authored by Assemblymember Mark Stone. There's certainly a number of co-authors. It's got pretty broad support. A similar bill passed fairly easily in the, you know, passed the legislature last year. That was AB 616. Uh, which was then vetoed by the governor. So this is a pretty similar piece of legislation. It's been introduced again by Assemblymember Stone. The same with a lot of labor laws. I think a, a, a good portion of the people that are opposing this bill would be the growers, the ones who have uh, financial incentive to keep wages suppressed and to keep workers from joining together and having a say at their work site. Right. So it seems as though the governor then has the ear of the of the growers that are opposing this bill. And is this the reason? I mean, this is a pretty drastic step. I mean, that's a a long march, 24 days, 335 miles, and it traces the historic 1966 Cesar Chavez-led march. So you're doing the march because you feel that that level of pressure is needed on the governor. Tell us all of the reasons behind organizing the march. I mean, doing it in this way. Yeah, absolutely. So when when you think about someone like the United Farm Workers, and when you think about the the sort of imbalance of power between uh, farm workers, which are some of the the poorest and most vulnerable workers in the country, as opposed to what is, you know, a massive industry, the agriculture, the commercial agriculture industry in California, uh, it's, it's really a David Goliath. And so, you know, there are many things that the United Farm Workers is very lean and many resources. But one thing that we're not lean in is, is passion for the movement. We've got a really righteous legacy and we've got some just tremendous solidarity from, from our friends in the, in the community, racial justice advocates, labor organizations, the clergy. Like we really do have this ton of solidarity and, and community support. We don't have as a, as a ton of other resources. So we're not going to be running full page ads in the paper, but we are uh, we are essentially a human billboard that's going to keep this 
keep this issue and how important it is to us in the forefront of people's minds in the next three weeks. Right. Now, how significant is it um, from your perspective that former Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez Fletcher has now taken the leadership of the California Labor Federation? What role if any, um, or, or what is the significance for farm workers? And what does that mean in terms of support uh, for this march uh, from a number of uh, labor unions, including uh, the AFL-CIO? Yeah, um, there has been no bigger champion for farm workers and, and other type of sort of disenfranchised low-wage workers. Uh, Lorena Gonzalez has been a, a tremendous champion for farm workers her entire career. She's someone who has always had a tremendous amount of sort of emotional intelligence around not just the economics of the farm worker experience, but around the, the different intersections of how difficult it is to overcome the vulnerability for these workers. So when she uh, announced that she was going to be taking the helm, at the at the Labor Federation, the California Labor Federation, as much as it was, you know, surprised to hear of her uh, leaving the assembly, it was to me it was a huge it was a huge win because you you really don't have that feeling with Lorena that farm workers are somehow a little bit outside of the traditional labor movement. Um, she really sees it as the core, especially in California, of the California labor movement. So when she she actually invited, she she called up the, the president of UFW, Teresa Romero, and she invited and asked for UFW to reaffiliate, which we did. She took the, the helm last week, and on the same day, UFW has reaffiliated with the Labor Federation. So that was, it really is this moment of feeling like we're coming back into the fold. And when I look at, we've only had one day, but I look at the different SEIU locals that were there, the, the gig workers were there, there's nurses that will be there for the whole march to help us with the little things like blisters, but big things like heat stroke. So really watching this outpouring of solidarity from the labor movement, it's really remarkable that a good part of that is the leadership style and pain goals of Lorena Gonzalez for the next year. She really hopes to take the labor movement in California to the workers and, and make it more accessible, make it easier. It should be easier for workers in California to join the union or to form a union of their own. It should be easier, not harder, and there should be more ways for them to do it. And it's in her sort of fundamental role that she's taking and her primary goal as she comes into the, the Labor Federation is to meet workers where they're at and to make it easier, not harder which fits right in line with what we're trying to do here. Yeah, and um, it's very encouraging to see the firefighters, the Teamsters, SEIU, Unite, uh, HERE, AFSME, and other unions uh, being part of this effort. And hopefully that'll have an impact on, on the governor. Now, you know, without farm labor, we, we know about the value of farm labor. Without the labor of farm workers to the food supply chain in California, um, the really the whole economy of the United States um, would be interrupted. We also know that immigrant farm workers, they make up an uh, about 73% of agricultural workers across uh, the United States. So this is essential work. But tell us then, I mean, you want the right um, for workers to be able to sign on to a union, not 
with the intimidation, intimidating, watchful eye of the growers, right? But tell us about some of the conditions that you're concerned about and the reasons why um, organizing a union is so important. What are some of the conditions that farm workers in California and their families face? We've made a lot of policy gains, particularly in, in the past few years, around things that are really talking about limiting certain hazards that are really life life threatening. Certainly, the exposure to pesticides and the ways that pesticide handling and application has been regulated. The biggest weather killer, the biggest natural condition that kills American workers in general is heat. And of course, heat has only gotten to be a more dangerous, a bigger hazard as these really extreme temperatures fluctuate, even in areas that aren't used to having these really high high temperatures. Any of these sort of, the things that make being a farm worker so tremendously dangerous are these types of things. All of these hazards, you do see a, where the regulations exist, we often have, the workers have a saying, the law on the books is not the same as the law in the fields, which means that you really do have a lot of non-compliance of some of the regulatory protections and things like that. At the end of the day, you can have the strongest rules in the world in terms of how your you know, employer is supposed to behave, but nothing protects a worker like a union. There is nothing that protects any individual worker like having the solidarity and having that sort of empowered place to come from that they can really lay out that they expect the rights to be followed, that they expect for the collective agreement to be to be respected and having that protection is really the best protection at all regardless of what the laws are because you can always bargain for better than the laws as well so even though we've made a lot of progress with certain types of laws with the with the health and safety regulations in California we've in addition to, to places like Washington and Oregon in the last couple of years but especially in California we've made a lot of progress on certain of these hazards like heat protections but at the end of the day, when a worker is so vulnerable, that intersection of being geographically isolated, of being socially, you know, outside of the typical safety net, like you've mentioned, the majority of farm workers in California are undocumented, which provides that further level of vulnerability. Until you have that protective solidarity where you really do have a structure to express that your rights need to be respected, then you're not going to have the, the full protection of even the laws that exist, let alone above and beyond. So a lot of the risks that we're going to be you know, encountering and the, and the things that are going to make this, this march so grueling are things that farm workers deal with when they work every day. When it's 100 degrees out, they go to work. When the air quality is poor, they go to work. And it's really very much the nature. It's a sacrificial march to remind people that this is really grueling life for workers that are some of the poorest in the country. And it really is a very basic thing for them to be able to have that accessible door open into, into signing a union contract and getting a collective agreement. Yeah, such a good reminder for who's really feeding California, feeding the state and feeding the nation. When people go to the supermarket and they, uh, you know, they buy the produce, et cetera, you know, they have to keep in mind the sacrifice uh, being made by these farm workers and including their families. Families. And, you know, just that's finally two things, you know, you there there is obviously an interrelationship with the conditions that farm workers are facing now and climate change and the climate crisis. You know, you talk about the heat um, as as one example. Uh, another thing is, is that we know the the wide pesticide use also uh, impacts uh, pollution generally and the health of people. And it, it's very worrying to think of farm workers day in and day out uh, being out in the fields and exposed uh, to these kinds of chemicals. So I wondered if you wanted to comment on that 
And then finally, for people who want to support the march and more broadly support uh, this bill and support your effort generally, tell us what they should do. Sure thing. Yeah, it really, you really do think of certain types of workers. In my case, obviously, I think the most about farm workers because I spend the most amount of time with farm workers. But we should think as well about people that are working in warehouse facilities, people that are your delivery drive workers, because these are all folks that are exposed to really high ambient heat. I almost think about them, they're like human shields against the worst violence of the climate crisis. They're these human shields that are doing the really grueling and really deadly work that it takes to put fruits and vegetables and all of the food that you have in your in your air-conditioned kitchen. There are people out there, real people out there that are doing this work and exposed to these conditions. So for people that want to learn more about our march, for people that want to, you can join for a day. There's a there's 23 days left here. So we arrive in Sacramento on August 26th. You can go to our website, ufw.org. At the banner at the top, you'll find there's uh, lots of information about the march for the governor's signature. You can sign up. You can sign up to join a town committee where you may not want to march yourself, but you live in one of those towns and you want to donate food. You want to help people find housing for the night. So ufw.org, and you can sign up for all sorts of different ways. You can also donate to supply the buses, the air conditions, so people are, are, are struggling with the heat. They have a place to step in out of the air conditioning for a minute. We need chilled water. We need electrolytes. All these sorts of things cost money. UFW has always not had a lot of money. We've always sort of operated somewhere between a labor union and a social movement. So it's been community funded uh, since the beginning. But UFW.org, you can donate, you can sign up to join, you can march for a day, you can march for the rest of it, you can join us in Sacramento, you can send Governor Newsom an email, but um, that's AB2183, uh, the Agricultural Relations Voting Choice Act, AB2183. So Feel free to weigh in on how you think uh, Gavin Newsom should be supporting uh, the farm workers that keep the, the food supply running for the rest of this country. Well, Elizabeth Strader, we will uh, certainly post your website on our social media. We thank you for taking time. How, how are the marchers doing? Just just quickly, how's it going I'm so just far? Seeing, you know, I'm just seeing photos uh, roll into the group chat here of folks that are uh, getting ready, heading out this morning. Uh, I think everyone was pretty excited when they started the day yesterday it was a really big day of course we had lots and lots of support at the 40 acres but uh by the end of the day i think everyone was pretty hot pretty ready to retire and uh hydrate and get ready for another day right well on that note we have to leave it there elizabeth strader director of strategic campaigns for the united farm workers thank you for joining us all righty we are going to take a short station break now and coming up for the rest of the hour we are going to be discussing lieutenant uhura as she is known to many of you nichelle nichols we lost nichelle nichols who played lieutenant uhura on star trek on saturday july 30th. Lawrence Ware is waiting to speak with us. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Y después de dos semanas para unirse a la batalla salieron los mexicanos. 
All righty, and that is the General Strike United Farm Workers song. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, and our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us there. And we are nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud today. We'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners, the farm workers across the state of California, to the farm workers across the state of California. And internationally, we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Singapore. Yes, we do have some SoundCloud listeners in Singapore. We are now going to turn our attention to a lot of people, including my own daughter, very, very sad at the passing of Nichelle Nichols, who died of heart failure on Saturday, July 30th. She was 89 years old. She, of course, is best known for her role as Lieutenant Uhura on Star Trek. And uh, at a time that Black women were most often portrayed on television as domestic servants, Nichelle Uhura was the USS Enterprises communication officer and the fourth in command of the ship. Let us go now to a clip from CNN on Nichelle. Before Nichelle Nichols broke barriers on board the USS Enterprise as Lieutenant Uhura, she was dancing and singing her way across the stages of New York City and Chicago, the city close to where she grew up, Robbins, Illinois. In 1967, she released a cover of the Joe McCoy classic, Why Don't You Do Right, on Epic Records. Get out of here, daddy. Get me some money too. But it was playing Star Trek's Lieutenant or Horror where she really found fame. It was a groundbreaking role for an African-American woman in 1966, widely considered one of the first times a woman of color was not portraying a servant on TV. Horror was the chief communications officer and fourth in command on board the Enterprise. I didn't find out that it was fourth in command till the second season. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody told me. Nichols actually thought about leaving after the first season. The show's creator, Gene Roddenberry, begged her to stay. But it was an influential fan that finally convinced her, Martin Luther King. He said, you can't. Oh. Don't you know who you are hmm. to our movement, to everyone who's, you are there in the 23rd century. You've created a role that has such dignity and everything, it's powerful. You cannot leave. Another landmark for the show during the turbulent 60s, the first scripted interracial kiss on national television in 1968. We had heard rumors that the southern stations, uh, some southern stations might might cut it down. It changed television forever and it also changed um, the way people looked at one another. Um, if they, their fa two of their favorite actors um, can battle through it and come through it on top, why can't everybody? The show ended in 1969, but endured for years in syndication and at conventions attended by devoted Trekkies. In 1994, Nichols published her autobiography, Beyond Uhura, Star Trek, and Other Memories. Nichols also starred in several Trek movies and even worked with NASA to increase diversity in the space program. I had the privilege 
of recruiting the first women and minority astronauts for the space shuttle program. Nichols' enduring beauty, her strength of character, her commitment to human rights will always inspire. All righty. And again, um, Nichelle uh, Nichols, a star of uh, Star Trek, very much uh, beloved, playing the role of Lieutenant Uhura, who passed away on Saturday, July 30th. I'd now like to welcome our guest, um, uh, Lawrence Ware is co-director of the Oklahoma State University of Africana Studies program and teaching assistant professor and diversity coordinator in the Department of Philosophy. He's a contributing writer to Slate Magazine, the New York Times, The Root. He has been a commentator on race and politics for the Huffington Post Live, NPR, and TV One. He has taught and lectured across the country on issues raging from race to economic policy. He organizes the Critical Conversations series, which hosts a number of events on campus related to race, gender, and religion. Uh, Lawrence Ware, uh, known as Law, welcome. Good to be here. Thank you, thank you for joining us. And I, I want to give props to my daughter Chanda, who put me in in touch with you. Now, this has been, uh, you know, um, Nichelle Nichols' passing uh, made headline news across the country. I'm sure it's also across the world. Mm -hmm. And even though um, the original Star Trek uh, went off the air, when was it 1969 or it's something been a like long that? Time. Long, it's been a time. long time. So <laughs> tell, tell us, tell us. The, the reasons why you think her impact continues today to be what it is well first the original star trek show it just remains just a counterpoint of just the height of fandom i mean there are people still today dressing up as trekkies and coming together and having conferences now i, I don't do that. that that's not exactly how i roll um but I absolutely respect it. And, and that's just a, a high point of fandom. People still love that. And then, of course, it spawned all these shows that still kind of continue today, like Strange New World. Like, that's kind of a prequel to that show. And then Discovery is in that universe. So, I mean, it's just Star Trek is just such a popular show. And with it being so popular, it's it's not lost on me that in with this popular show that came out in the 60s, no less, in the height of the civil rights movement, there was this Black woman who was uh, um, a very pivotal part of that show. She wasn't a background player. She wasn't a person who was working down in, in the lower decks and doing things uh, as an engineer to keep the ship going. She was right there. She was in the forefront. She was almost in virtually every scene. She had a speaking role. And that was very, very significant. And so because of her being there, she was so beloved. And I don't think that she really understood in that first season when she really first got started just how important she was. She was keeping her head down. She was doing the work. But her love was always with Broadway. She wanted to be a singer. She wanted to be in theater. Um, and rightfully so. She's very, very talented. But the role that she played was so pivotal and it, it was kind of so attractive to black folks all across the country in particular black girls and black women 
that King, as as the clip has already said, said to her, you know, you can't leave this. You know, she was thinking about leaving the show after the first season and going to Broadway. Gene Roddenberry was very distraught about that. But King was really the person who convinced her to stay because King, as perceptive as he was, saw that she was a role model that was transcending grace and letting people know that Black folks are there in the future, which is something that I am very passionate about, the whole notion of Afrofuturism. Yeah, and I, I want to talk about Afrofuturism in a moment and, and put Nichelle Nichols and her role as mm -hmm. uh, Lieutenant Uhura within that. But mm -hmm. as you say, uh, Dr. King, uh, she also said, told her that you don't need to march. You're already marching because yeah, yeah, you're reflecting, uh, you know, what what we're fighting for. So, you know, um, Law, I wonder if, you know, and Roddenberry, of course, um, the creator of, of Star Trek, he had worked with her before in mm -hmm. her first TV role in that uh, series called The Lieutenant. Interestingly right. enough, it was The Lieutenant. <laughs> she became <laughs> Lieutenant. She became uh, Lieutenant on the show. <laughs> right. That, that's right. Um, you know, but I really wonder if there would have been a Lieutenant Uhura if there wasn't a movement on the ground, if it wasn't for the civil mm. rights movement, the growing militant black movement that was happening. Because, you know, often people don't talk about the interrelationship of one with the other in terms mm -hmm. of what's happening in Hollywood and what may be happening with uh, social and cultural movements on the ground. You're right. well, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. You know, one of the things I, I think you're right, I think that that the civil rights movement kind of provided an opportunity for, for them to put her there. I, I don't think that she would have gotten there. I'm just being honest with you. Hollywood is very, very racist, continues to be racist. I mean, let's just be honest about that. Yeah. And I don't think that uh, she would have gotten that role if it hadn't been for Gene Roddenberry kind of placing her in that place um, and really having the sympathies that he had uh, with the civil rights movement. But I do think that the movement itself certainly provided that opportunity um, for her to be in that role. But regardless of how we got there, I'm so happy that she was there because as you said, you know, one of the things that we think about when we think about activism, and you know about activism, I mean, you are a legend. I, I want to say I'm so happy to be on with you. But um, I just need to throw that out there. But uh, honestly, I mean, the thing we think about activism is that activism is about raising awareness to things, to let people know that this is something we need to kind of pay attention to, that we need to address. And she was very concerned that she wasn't having as much of an impact as she could have been in the streets or whatnot. And he had to let her know that what you're doing is just as important as what we are doing in the streets, that you being in the place that you're in, um, having this place on television where people across the country are watching you, right? I mean, I, I cannot overstate how popular that show was. I cannot overstate it. I mean, it was huge in the 1960s. Uh, it's huge now. And so yeah. uh, for her to be in that space, absolutely helped his movement um and so it what we have here is this interesting place where pop culture is kind of speaking to the civil rights movement the civil rights movement is also speaking to the pop culture and and these things are working together in tandem and i think that she absolutely had a, a pivotal role in helping black folks get whatever kind of freedoms they've gotten um and of course she's had more um of an impact when it comes to nasa and recruiting uh, women and minorities in that space. So she was she was a, a pivotal role, a pivotal person in the civil rights movement as, as well as in pop culture.
Yeah, and and paying her dues growing up in um in Chicago, she yes. did grow up in a middle class family. But mm -hmm. you know, uh, ballet as a as a as a child, as a teenager, yes. as mm -hmm. a singer and dancer, and I didn't realize that she had toured with uh, Duke Ellington's uh, orchestra. She did. And, she did. You she know, was talented. She was talented. Yeah, and she had to. I mean, if you look at um, a lot of people talk about Diane Carroll's role in Julia, mm -hmm. right? A single mother and a nurse. Uh, but also going back to the 1950s, I mean, if you look at the roles black women had as like maids, as domestic servants, or some in some kind of, of service role, particularly mm -hmm. for white people, you think of. Um, um, that show Beulah with yep. Ethel Waters and Hattie McDaniel, you know, playing maids yes. to white family yes, in the early absolutely. 50s. And yes. that was roundly criticized, too, by the civil mm -hmm. rights movement. So it seemed as though the, the, the role then of, of Lieutenant Ura took that to a whole other level because this woman wasn't, she wasn't, uh, not to put down domestic servants. They do very important caregiving absolutely. work. They should paid um, properly uh, for it, because let's face it, none of us would survive without um, the caregiving, caregiving work. But, but yeah, but she was somebody, she was serious. I mean, she played this, she had all this little sexy outfit from what I could remember, <laughs> right? As someone, someone described it that way, but she was really serious with what she was doing. She, she was, was an officer. Honest. She was an officer. She was a person yeah. in authority. She was giving orders. She was nobody's servant. She was nobody's lackey. She was the one who was giving the order. She was an officer. She was someone that they had to take seriously. And to see a black woman in that space, being serious, being professional, being sexy, as you said, I ain't said you said it, but being <laughs> all these things, right? Yeah. That was absolutely important. It was pivotal. It was so important for her to have that role. And King was right. I disagree with King on a lot of stuff, but King was right on this one. He was right that that she needed to be in that space, in that role, and um, kind of portray Black womanhood and Black femininity as powerful and as professionally and as sexy as she was doing. That's right. And then she also sang at, at uh, Martin Luther King's uh, funeral. But just um, on another uh, aspect of this, you mentioned Black futurism uh, earlier. We haven't had a lot of discussion on this show about Black futurism. We know there's also kind of something called Black pessimism. Actually, mm, you, th these kinds yeah. of discussions are a little bit past yeah. the movement that I was trained in. You know, I was trained in <laughs> civil rights, welfare rights movement, you know, the women's movement, etc. Yeah, but absolutely. what role does, um, I mean, she was playing somebody from the, the, the 20 third uh century yeah, right for the future right mm -hmm. for, the, for the future 23rd 24th so, yeah somewhere from the, from the future yes yeah yeah something like that but mm -hmm. tell us about black futurism and the role that somebody or the influence of somebody like michelle nichols because she not only played lieutenant uhura as you say she went on and she recruited i mean sally ride one of the first black of uh, first woman first black person who went into a space where people that she um helped to recruit so you know just just tell us about that her character her role and this whole discussion and influence of the black futurism 
Okay, so um, well, first of all, black pessimism. I'm not touching that. I'm not a black pessimist. I don't even <laughs> like that theory. So I just want to let you know that I did not have nothing to do with that. I just want you to know that I won't. I don't want folks to listen to me writing me letters and be mad at me because I didn't say that. That was you. I didn't say that. I have nothing I to feel, do with it. I feel you. I feel you. Okay. I feel you. I've been getting them letters, man, and I'm not trying to get no more letters that I have to get. But black futurism. <laughs> so black futurism. I mean, really. In a nutshell, it's very simple. You can just boil it down to, I mean, I can get very philosophical and I can get kind of hoity-toity, but I mean, let's just break it down to what it is. Black futurism is the idea that there are Black people in the future. That's what it is, right? And and what role would those Black people play? What role would those Black people have? Um, Because I'm trying not to get, let, let, let me get militant. There have been forces trying to kill black folks since our um, setting foot on this country's ground. And so black futurism is the idea that despite all of the things that have tried to kill us, all the things that have tried to silence us, all the things that have tried to take away our power, uh, that there still remains a black presence in the future. And for me, that is a beautiful idea. The idea that in the future, Black people persist, that there is a Black culture in the future, that there is a Black culture in the future that probably is still going to be dealing with with some kind of semblance of racism, but still they're there and they're kind of persisting and they're thriving in the future. And so what she provides is a lens into that and really one of the most um, widely known and earliest uh, widely known pop culture lens into that because she's a Black woman in the future. And so what she does, and again, as I said, I don't think she knew this when she was kind of stepping into this role, but what she does is she provides for us a lens into Black people being there. What does it mean for that Black woman to be there? How does she, as a Black woman, rise to the ranks that she did, uh, despite the fact that there's probably some racism there? Um, who does she love? Who does she get along with? Who does she not like? You know, what what's that all about? And so Black Panther, the movie that came out a few years ago, and there's a sequel that's coming out soon, that deals with Black futurism as well, because that's about a Black person. The time is kind of in, kind of like not known, but it's very a futuristic society uh, with Black Panther. And so all these things kind of speak to the notion of Black futurism. And so Black futurism on the heels of Black Panther really got a, a little bit of a, a toehold in the culture because people begin to kind of notice that people like me and other folks are writing about Black futurism in the wake of that film. And so Black futurism, it's a very important idea. It's an idea that's been around for a very, very long time, but really she embodied the um, realization of Black futurism kind of in a real practical sense because she is a woman in the future just there on screen. And so one of the things that she does is that she begins to recruit other folks who look like her, who come from similar backgrounds as her into NASA, which kind of furthers the notion of Black futurism because she's helping Black folks in the real world get to where she was in pop culture, right? So... It, it and and it really speaks to how popular that she was, because I mean, listen, I can try to recruit for NASA, ain't nobody gonna listen to me. Um, you can try to recruit <laughs> for NASA, ain't nobody gonna listen because because yeah. we ain't nobody. <laughs> but she has such an indelible role. Now, listen, she ain't no rocket scientist. She was an actress on a TV show, but she was so impactful in that role that she absolutely caught the eye of a lot of folks and helped get them into NASA. And you're right that her 
presence is still felt now in pop culture, but it's going to be felt significantly more moving forward in the real world. Yeah. And, you know, I'll, I'll talk about, you know, whether or not, you know, you don't have to be a fan of NASA. A lot of people, including myself, have been <laughs> utterly fascinated with the, the images coming back from what my daughter calls the Just Wonderful Telescope as part of her protest against it being called <laughs> James Webb, who was a bit of a homophobic uh, person. Right. But um, those images, and there's another one I just saw today, are incredible. But what a lot of people don't know is that that whole telescope project, the just wonderful telescope known to some as James Webb, wouldn't have happened if it weren't a black guy Absolutely. in NASA who saved the whole darn thing. And who knows if, um, you know, if Nichelle was, if he was one of those people, you know, recruited by or, or if he, he might have been. No but uh, this whole black futurism thing, because I loved uh, Black Panther, okay? And I'm really looking forward to October when Wakanda too. comes out. And recently, I have been watching a series about Nigeria, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the whole colonialism period, but also something on Cuba called Cuba Libre. And it just makes you think that if the the uh, you know the slave trade had not been what it was if, uh, if if europe didn't underdevelop africa as in, in walter rodney's book i mean you know people look at haiti for example the haitian revolution that was so put down i mean if we had had a chance to develop in 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 the way that we could have without all of these uh, all of these things you could really kind of see a different you know a black futurism that was impacted negatively by yes. all of all of this stuff so for me right. i think it's really right. important to be hopeful and to to really look at our you know at our history you know mm -hmm. in that way and also where where we're going um but just um you know i know we we just have have a, a few minutes left here, but mm -hmm. just in terms of the way the the way she made for other black actors, uh, not not necessarily in a role like this, but just with having mm -hmm. more substantive yes. uh, roles. Do you Very think important. that it had an impact there? Oh, <laughs> without <laughs> you knew the answer to that question when you asked it. Yes, of course I, you I did. sure do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, because before this, uh, Hattie McDaniel had won an Oscar, but she was playing a servant role. It was a relatively important role in Gone with the Wind. I mean, I got all kinds of criticisms of it. Um, but it was a relatively important role. She played it well, but it, it was still a servant role. What this does is this doesn't, like, open the door marginally. She kicks down the door for there to be significant roles for Black folks that are professional that are sexy, that are impactful, and, and, and that are not in service to the plot, but rather they are um, furthering the plot of a film. And I mean, and there's a lot there I can go into, but, 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 but she opens the door for there to be roles that are meaty, that are powerful, that are important. And, and this impact was far more than if she had left and gone to uh, you know, Broadway, you know, she she had such an important role. Now, um, she was doing it in the realm of sci-fi, but of course, after her, you begin to kind of see a whole bunch of plethora of different kinds of roles, good time, all the kind of stuff, you know, now, those, yes. those roles are important, they're meaty. Um, they're, they're not sci-fi, but they are absolutely beholden to her 
being in a place where she opens the door for there to be all these other people kind of coming up. We would not have a Denzel Washington right now if it had not been for her because she was the one who opened the door for him and for other folks to kind of walk through and kind of really shine the way that they are now. Yeah, we wouldn't have had a Halle Berry and, and, and the rest of them um, either. So, um, you know, recently, we, we just have a, a minute or so left, but I read with interest your article about Mary Alice. Ah, She's yes. one you don't hear yes. a lot about from a different world and, mm -hmm. and others. And, and you make a very, very good case about the quality of her acting, but yet you talked about the racism in, in, in Hollywood, the role that she should have had and she didn't get. You you just want to give us a, a quick uh, minute on Mary Alice? Sure. I'll, I'll just say in, in a nutshell, Mary Alice was an important person, uh, an important actress. Um, her, her most famous role was probably the Oracle in the final Matrix, not the final, I guess the third Matrix film. Um, that in the first two Matrix films, there was one Black woman, she died, and then Mary Alice took it over in the third Matrix film. But anyway, Mary Alice was an important actress. She won a Tony. I mean, she was a great actress, but she never really got the opportunity to be who she should have been in Hollywood because I would argue she was a Black woman. And not only was she a Black woman, because she wasn't like a Holly Berry Black woman, she was a Black Black woman. She was a dark-skinned Black woman. And so being a dark-skinned Black woman, there was just a limited number of roles for her to have. And so anyway... In a nutshell, I thought that Mary Alice was such an important person that I, I had to write upon. I, I really don't write as much as I used to, but I had to write upon her because it was such an important role that she played in Black folks' lives, uh, being in yeah. a different world, but she never really got her due, and I think that she should have. Right. Well, I'm afraid we're out of time. I'm getting a notice that we okay. got to go. Okay. We but love, I love this discussion. Hope to have you back. Thank you for joining yes, us. Thank you. Bye-bye. righty. We're out of time. Today's show produced by Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank our assistant producer, Alicia Vargas. I'd like to thank our board op for today. Gary Bacco is our board op today. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air tomorrow. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for Democracy Now! And you'll please stay well and safe. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott.